Psalm 60, or Isaiah 64, if you're using your Bible, you'll find that on page 623. And the premise behind this, uh, I, I hopefully will keep shortening the setting and the context, but I need to give some setting and some context. The setting for what's happening in Isaiah 64 is this. The Lord has promised Isaiah that he himself will be the one to bring salvation to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem is particularly the focal point, but Jerusalem stands for the people of God. It stands especially for Israel, but it stands for God's purposes of redemption for his people. So the Lord has promised, this is kind of an advancement, this is uh, more specific than what a lot of people before Isaiah's day knew, that it's in fact the Lord himself that's going to bring that salvation. He's not going to send somebody, and he's not just going to do something. He himself is going to come and bring that salvation. That's a, a pretty big advancement in Isaiah, which we've looked at, and we will touch on it again this morning. An example of what the Lord promises would be in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I actually think it would be fascinating to go into the context of Isaiah chapter 30. But to do that fairly, then it would keep getting bigger and bigger. And, and we could just put off Ephesians for this year. So I don't want to do that. But one of the things that's interesting in chapter 30 and verse 18. I mean, the Lord is promising to be gracious. He is going to accomplish something. But there's a waiting on God's part. And then there's also this blessing on those who wait, for, wait on God who is waiting to do what he's going to do. So there's a lot of waiting going on in chapter 30 and verse 18. And then we find out in chapter 49 and verse 23, and this is something that's repeated in Old and New Testaments, the idea that those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. Those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. Now Isaiah, who's writing chapter 64, he's not a lot different from we are. Isaiah doesn't like waiting. Isaiah finds waiting difficult. The Lord has promised to do this wonderful thing, but Isaiah would really like to see it come to fruition. And the sooner the better. And that's not unnatural. I think that's very natural. Waiting is hard. So, given that... How should Isaiah wait? How should we wait? That's the, the questions we explored last week. We looked at those in, in a little bit more detail than what we're going to look at this morning. How do you wait well? And there are all kinds of answers given in Scripture. How to wait well. But the answer in this context of Isaiah chapter 64, how to wait well, was answered kind of specifically in chapter 62 and verses 6 and 7. Now I'm going to show you those verses on the screen We've looked at those verses for several weeks, but I will reduce it. How to wait well in the context of Isaiah. Number one, you watch and pray. You watch and you have an ex expectation that the Lord, in fact, will do what he said he will do. So you're watching for him to do that, and you're praying to that end. That's what Isaiah is told to do. That's what the church is told to do. The church is told to watch and pray. Secondly, from Isaiah 62, they are to recall and put the Lord in remembrance. Recall and remember what the Lord has told you. 
And then when it says, put the Lord in remembrance, that's not what it seems like it's saying. He's not just repeating himself. Now remember, and then remember the Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, recall and put the Lord in remembrance. Remind the Lord that this is what he said he would do. It's putting the Lord in... The Lord hasn't forgotten, and that's kind of a shocking statement. But that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 62 is suggesting. Remember what God said, and then repeat it back to the Lord. And if you want a really good example of this, a really good example would be, it's exactly what Moses did. Moses, back in Exodus chapter 32, well, 31, he went up on Mount Sinai to to hear from the Lord. And he's receiving the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And while he's receiving those Ten Commandments, there's commotion in the camp. And the Lord tells Moses, go down. Uh, these people have, are committing an idolatry against me. They've, they've fashioned, molded a golden calf. And in that exchange in chapter 32, it reads, I'm going to read parts of it from that chapter. It reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. We're going to start all over. You are going to be the great nation. That's what the Lord tells Moses on the mount. But, next verse, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power? And a mighty hand. And then Moses says this. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. That's exact. What, what Isaiah is told to do, put the Lord in remembrance, is exactly what Moses did. Lord, you can't start over with me. You can't destroy these people no matter how stiff-necked they are, no matter how idolatrous they are. You made a promise. Remember your promise? The Lord hasn't forgotten his promise, but that's the way it plays out in the way that Moses is speaking with the Lord. And so Moses does. He he puts the Lord in remembrance. You've got to keep your promise. That's what Isaiah is told to do. The Lord has made a promise to us that he himself is going to bring salvation. Don't let him forget it. He's not going to forget it. I'm not suggesting that. Just, that's just the language that is used in Scripture. It's an accommodation of us because we so often forget. By us reminding God, really what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves. The Lord will never forget his own promises. So Isaiah begins remembering. He begins praying. This is called a lament by most commentators. It's a prayer that starts in chapter 63 and verse 7 and continues through all the rest of the chapter, and it continues through all of chapter 64, Isaiah's prayer. But it starts this way. I will recount, I'm going to remember, 
the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then that prayer just continues through all the rest of the chapter. And what Isaiah basically is doing when he's recalling and what he's remembering is he's remembering the Lord's past mercies to Israel. Especially, he's remembering that the way the Lord remembered his people were in slavery in Egypt. And the Lord was compassionate to them and brought them out of the land of slavery by his own mighty right arm. He's remembering all the, all the past mercies of God and he's praying for new mercies. Remember the past mercies. And he's praying for new mercies, a fresh outpouring. He remembers how the Lord placed the Holy Spirit in their midst. And he led those people. And he provided for those people. And he gave those people a, a measure of rest. And Isaiah is wanting the, the Lord to do those things for his generation, for his people. It kind of culminates the... The first part of this prayer in chapter 63, it culminates in this plea, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Lord, I know because of your relationship with us, it's only by grace, it's what you chose to do. You're the one who called us, redeemed us, chose us. I know you want to help. You're our father. I know, but I'm not seeing it. Where is that zeal? Where is that might? Lord, do something. You've done it in the past. He's pleading for the Lord to do something in his day. That's the culmination of chapter, 60, of chapter 63. Then the lament continues in chapter 64. I'm just going to read the first uh, four and a half verses of chapter 64. We'll do the balance of it next week. And in your Bibles, what is verse 5 is very unfortunately divided. The division between verses 4 and 5 should not be where it is. The division should be right in the middle of verse 5 because there is a dramatic change of tone. So I'll read the first four and a half verses of Isaiah's continuing lament, his continuing prayer. It reads like this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who, there's this idea of waiting again, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Stop. So we'll stop right there. His prayer starts off with this dramatic expression in verse 1 of chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Uh, Isaiah's prayer is intensifying the longer it goes. He started off, look down from heaven and see. And now his prayer is, don't just look and see what's happening. 
rend the heavens, tear open the heavens and come down. Because if you saw what was going on, as a father would do, he expects that the Lord would tear open the heavens and come down, if he only saw. So it starts off, look down and see, now it's rend the heavens and come down. That's a very powerful word. It's filled with emotion. It's used many times in the Bible. Let me tell you the first two times it's ever found in the Bible. The first time that word rend or tear open is ever used is found in Genesis chapter 37. That's the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his ten brothers. Benjamin's younger, so Benjamin isn't there. But the ten older brothers are there. And And Joseph is the favored son. And Joseph was given a coat of many colors by his father Jacob. And Joseph is having these dreams of grandeur, these dreams of greatness that he shares with his family, shares with his father and his mother, and he shares with his brothers, and his brothers hate him. And Joseph has been sent on assignment by the father to check on how the other brothers are doing taking care of the livestock. And they see Joseph coming, and they're like, we hate Joseph. And this is our chance to get him. And they're going to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, doesn't want to kill him. He thinks that's a bad idea. So they throw Joseph in a pit, and Reuben, I guess, figures that'll at least buy him time and give the other brothers a chance to cool down, their anger to subside a little bit. I don't know why Reuben left the situation, Uh, But he left, and in the meantime, some traitors are coming through, and Joseph's other brothers decide, okay, let's not kill him, let's at least make some money out of the deal, and they sell him into slavery. He goes down into Egypt. Reuben comes back, and the pit is empty, and he's like, where's Joseph? And they're like, well, we sold him into slavery. And Reuben tears his clothes. What have you done? You sold our brother into slavery? Do you know what this is going to do to the family, to our father? And sure enough, they go back to the dad. They dip Joseph's coat in in some uh, blood. And they take it back to dad and say, Oh, we found this coat. Is that Joseph's coat? And the dad's like, he identifies it. Yes, that's my son's coat. He must have been eaten by wild animals. And Jacob tears his garments. He's lost his son. And it says in the text, that the sons and his daughters try to comfort Jacob, but he won't be comforted. He loved Joseph. He tears his garment. That's what Isaiah's praying. It's not, Lord, factually, objectively, this is a situation where we could really use your help. We're in deep weeds. We have a lot of trouble. It's not a dispassionate plea. It's not asking God to do something just because he has power. It's God be so involved in our situation, that you care about us that deeply. Remember uh, last week, from last week in chapter 63, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. And we talked about what does that mean, because God is not a man. He can't be afflicted like we are. But in some condescending sense, when God's people are afflicted, God is afflicted as well. That's in Isaiah 63. So that's the prayer. That's what Isaiah is praying. Rend the heavens and come down. So question, or think about it. Consider occasions when the Lord has, in fact, rent the heavens and come down. What is Isaiah thinking? What is he imagining? What is he 
He's, he's requesting God to do this thing. What would it look like? What has it looked like in times past? It's very clear. The gold standard in all of the Old Testament for God rending the heavens and coming down has to do with God saving his people out of slavery in Egypt. The language is all over the place about God rending the heavens and coming down. It's found in uh, Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 19. You don't need to turn to those passages unless you want to, uh, but I'll read a couple verses from those passages. Chapter 3 says this, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. I've come, I know their, I've seen their affliction. I know their sufferings. And I'm coming down to deliver them. And Moses is sent. And the deliverance doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of ten plagues as they play themselves out. It happens when their backs are up against the Red Sea and then the Lord delivers them through the Red Sea as on dry land. That's how the deliverance comes. But that's a great example of the Lord rending the heavens and coming down to deliver his people. But there's another example that, that I think is in Isaiah's mind, though I think that's probably the, the foremost example in Isaiah's mind, that the Exodus deliverance story. But there's an example, I assume it's already happened. Uh, a lot of times the prophets aren't written so chronologically that, you know, we've, Isaiah's got 66 chapters. But it's not like chapter 1 uh, happened first chronologically all the way through through 66. That's not the way prophets write. They kind of dice things up and they deal with things topically. And they reboot the whole process. We have talked about that a couple weeks ago, maybe last week. But at any rate, Isaiah's got another example of the Lord rending the heavens and coming down. Now the language isn't exactly rending the heavens, but it is a, an example of God dramatically changing the situation. God dramatically bringing relief to affliction. And this is a story that's found, you can turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 37, since you're in Isaiah anyway, this will be an easy one to go to. The Assyrians in Isaiah's day are the most powerful nation on earth. And the Assyrians have wiped out all the Judean cities and taken whatever they wanted. And the Assyrian army is outside the walls of Jerusalem and they're besieging the city. And inside the city, if you're a Jew inside the city, you are starving slowly to death. And you don't have much hope because this Assyrian army is unmatched of all the armies on the earth. And so Hezekiah, who is the king, prays regarding this situation. So look at Isaiah chapter 37. Look at Hezekiah's prayer, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God who, you are the God, you alone are the king. I'm missing this, I'm missing it. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. 
Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah doesn't have much hope. Hezekiah knows if if they're going to be saved from their immediate crisis and situation, the Lord has got to intervene. And so through the prophet Isaiah, it is announced to King Hezekiah that in fact the Lord is going to come down. He is going to provide relief to this situation. So still in chapter 37, this is what the Lord says through Isaiah. Verse 33, Isaiah 37, 33. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. The Lord came down. He sent uh, an angel who slew 185,000 of those that were encamped against them of the Assyrians. That's, that's the Lord coming down and providing relief, pr- providing mercy to a situation that seems hopeless, a crisis that is at hand. Isaiah knows both of those situations. He knows one of them he's lived, one of them he knows well because he's an Israelite. There's a third situation, if you want an example of when the Lord rends the heavens and comes down. I could give you some verses from Isaiah that speak of this. This is the last future rending the heavens and coming down. Isaiah speaks of that, but not in quite so specific terms as Daniel the prophet. So I'm going to show you what Daniel said about what I will call the future rending the heavens the end of the age in Daniel chapter 7. It reads like this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the ultimate, final, culminating, rending the heavens, coming down, and making all things right. And Daniel speaks of it in terms of this kingdom, in which that hasn't happened yet. That's the last and final, rending the heavens, and making things right. Jesus identifies himself as, when it talks about this one who's like a son of man, who comes to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before, and to him was given a dominion, Jesus says, in, a set, in, in essence, Jesus says, yeah, that's talking about me. And it was at Jesus' trial, it's found in Matthew 26, it reads like this. The high priest, Jesus has been accosted, he's been arrested, he's been apprehended, And under cover of darkness before the Sanhedrin, the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us. 
And here's Jesus' answer. Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting, or he's re- referencing Daniel chapter 7. You know that person I talked about in Daniel 7? That's me. And you're going to see that happen. And the high priest now rends his garments. And he says, we've all heard it. He's blasphemed God. He's making himself out to be God. He deserves to die. His conclusion is right. If you blaspheme God, you deserve to die. But Jesus has not blasphemed God because Jesus is God. And so when Jesus refers to Daniel chapter 7 and he says, that's talking about me, it's exactly right. Now what Daniel foresaw, what Jesus says, yeah, that's talking about me, You see it actually happen in the end of Revelation. It looks like this. Revelation chapter 19. I won't read all of those verses, but the essence goes like this. Then I saw heaven opened. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. John says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him on white horses. Daniel foresaw it. Jesus, when he came the first time, said, yeah, that's talking about me. And when Jesus comes the second time, it will all play out just according to what the prophet said. Just according to what Jesus said. It will all play out exactly as purposed by God. So let's go back to Isaiah's lament. Isaiah is saying, rend the heavens and come down. Here's the thing. I think in the larger context of what Isaiah says, what he prays, what he laments... I think Isaiah wants something more than what the Lord did for the Hebrews who were enslaved to Egypt. I think what Isaiah wants is something more than deliverance from like an Assyrian army that has besieged a city. I think what Isaiah wants is something more than what you find, about, find out in Revelation 19. He wants more than that. He's envisioning something bigger than that. How could it possibly be bigger? Let me take you back to something else Jesus said about his return. This is found in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is with his apostles. Jesus says this to his apostles. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The fact that the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his fathers, or the glory of his Father, that's exactly what Daniel said in chapter 7. He's going to come. Before the Ancient of Days, he's going to come in this glory, and he will be given all power and dominion, and he will rule. Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's going to come. That's very similar to what I read to you in Isaiah, the first part of verse 5, which says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. He is coming with the angels, the glory of his father, he will repay to each person according to what he's done. He will meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember the father in his ways. Is this, what kind of news is this? Is this good news? 
Is this bad news? Isaiah looks at all that and he says, this is bad news. We're not ready to meet that God. If that God comes and he repays each person according to what he's done, what hope is there? Because Isaiah has come to this acute, deep awareness that the problem isn't the Assyrians outside. It's not the Egyptians who enslave. It's not the Babylonians who will take us into exile. It's not the Romans who are going to destroy Jerusalem again in 70 AD. The problem is inside. And if all you have is that message, there's no hope. So when Isaiah says, I need you to rend the heavens and come down, he wants more than just a display of God's power to judge the, their enemies. There's a, a saying, I tried to look it up to make sure this was right. I know I read this. I can't find out where I read it. Nor could I verify this little anecdotal story on the internet, so it could be a legend that isn't entirely true. But what I remember reading, because I have it written in my notes, is there was a day when St. Augustine, back in the day, 4th century or whenever it was, St. Augustine was overcome by the sin that he saw. And he, his prayer to God was, Oh, Lord, destroy the wicked! And immediately shot back in his soul, Which one? Are you talking about you, Augustine? Or are you talking about the wicked person over there that you don't like? Isaiah is praying more than just, oh, Lord, destroy the wicked. Because Isaiah, or the Lord could easily shoot back to Isaiah. Are you talking about you? Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I'm sinful too. Rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah then, the next part of verse 5 says, behold, I mean, if I go back, I mean, the Lord meets joyfully the person who works righteousness. If you work righteousness, you have no reason to fear the Lord coming down. If you work righteousness. But Isaiah follows it up with, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? That's the dilemma. That's the crisis. It's not outside. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the one that needs deliverance. And what is the Lord going to do about that? Isaiah chapter 48, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord says, oh, that you'd paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. It's kind of interesting. There's this, like a, there's this divine or this cosmic or this eternal uh, impasse. Isaiah says, oh, that you'd rend the heavens and come down. And the Lord says, oh, same word, oh, that you'd paid attention to my commandments. Where's the breakdown? Where's the failure? Is the problem that the Lord won't rend the heavens, or is the problem we don't keep his commandments? That we're not ready to meet that Lord if he did come down. If the Lord came down when Isaiah wanted, it would be to no good end, ultimately. Matthew chapter 16, this is what Jesus said right before those words. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What will it profit a nation if he delivers them, if he delivers that nation out of slavery in Egypt and they lose their soul? What will it profit a nation if he delivers them from the Assyrians? 
or the Babylonians or the Romans and they lose their soul. What will it profit a nation if the Lord takes his people into a land flowing with milk and honey and they lose their soul? What will it profit? Isaiah, I think all this put together has an awareness that they need something more than just a deliverance like they've experienced in their history in times past. They are the problem. And so, in Amos, this is a prophet who actually came before Isaiah. Amos says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. And what he's talking about is basically an incident like this, if the Lord were to rend the heavens and come down. That's a day of the Lord, where the Lord injects himself in a situation. He puts himself in that situation to make things right. Amos says, why would you want that? And he's talking to the Israelites. He's talking to God's people. Why do you think you want God to come down? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness in it? The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Isaiah and his generation is no more ready for the day of the Lord than any previous generation. Or any generation after unless the Lord does something to remedy, remedy that situation. You know, we, we all get in difficult times, whether it's individuals or a family or even a culture, and you think, oh, God would just come back. But Amos would say, do you really want him to come back? Are you ready to meet him? And, and maybe you are because of Christ. But if you think, oh, if God just would do something and fix the situation, and you don't understand that that, that includes you, that's not something you want. Well, well, let's look at what Isaiah says about his generation. I read the the middle part of verse 5, but let me read the rest of it. Isaiah understands they are thoroughly guilty as a people. They're not ready for that day. So the middle of verse 5 says, uh, middle of verse, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That's not a good situation. And Isaiah is aware of that situation. So the basis of Isaiah's hope... The basis of this cry is based upon, he's, he's uh, putting God in remembrance of what God said he was going to do. And I keep highlighting these verses as hugely important in Isaiah, so here they are again. Isaiah's hope is in this, chapter 59, verses 16 to 20, abbreviated. The Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put, on a, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And it ends with, and a redeemer will come to Zion. 
That's what Isaiah is wanting. It's more than just a God who will judge the enemies. It's a God who will be a redeemer of Zion. Oh, that you would rent. You said no one could intercede, so you will. Oh, God, rend the heavens and come down. Deliver us from our sin. That's what he's praying. That's, that's at least part of what his prayer includes. Does the Lord grant Isaiah's request? Not in Isaiah's day. There's still that waiting going on in Isaiah's day. But the Lord, does the Lord grant his request? Yes, he does. In some sense, he certainly does. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, we took a break uh, when I was doing some more Christmas-themed uh, passages. And in Luke, chapter 2, you're familiar, we read it several times. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Did God rend the heavens and come down? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. That coming down was probably not what Isaiah would have imagined. It started off like an infant. But that's exactly how it started off. A passage I do want you to turn to, and we're pretty much going to be done with this. Go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And then I'll open it up for comments and questions. Second gospel, Matthew, second gospel is Mark. Mark's gospel starts off with not nearly as much background information as the other gospels. Mark's gospel starts right off with um, preparing the way for Jesus and his entrance into ministry. So Mark's gospel, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his way paths straight. That messenger is John the Baptist. So verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Oh, that God would rend the heavens. And the heavens are torn open. And what comes down is the, is the spirit as a dove. A, a word of peace. And salve. it ushers in a day, a, 
the year of the Lord's favor, a year of grace, and not a day of vengeance. That's exactly what Isaiah, Isaiah needs most. To whatever extent he realized what that would look like or how necessary it was, God rent the heavens and Jesus came. Are you understanding how important Jesus is to all of God's purposes of redemption and judgment? It all hinges on him. It's what all is all of mankind, all of creation has ever longed for. It's only found in Christ. And God rends the heavens and gives us a savior. What are your comments and questions? Rick Three temptations that are common to men uh, that we commonly stumble over, and that is not to find out if Jesus is worthy. It's to demonstrate his worthiness. It's to demonstrate his worthiness. I think some of the the best material I've ever read about those three temptations of the wilderness came from Alicia Britt Collet in her book, Anonymous, where she goes through those three temptations. Especially, for me, it was a huge eye-opener, the third temptation, when... Uh, Satan, however that worked out, showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and said, all these can be yours if you bow down to me. And I, I never understood the temptation in the way that Elisha broke it down and explained it. And the way she explained it was he, Satan was offering Jesus a chance to make, to make everybody's problems go away, to answer all the prayer requests. Give everybody that. You can make everybody well you want. You can make all the blind people see, all the lame people walk. You can feed people with five loaves and two fish every day of your life. Answer. You can make all people's heartaches and tears go away. But there's no blood and there's no cross. Isaiah knows we need more than just deliverance from Assyrians and Babylonians and Romans. Jesus knows people need more than their their bellies filled, and being able to walk and live a good long life and gain the world, but lose their soul. So Jesus, in spite of the fact knowing he can, he can make people's sorrows go away, he can dry up tears, he knows what they need most of all is something that requires his death on a cross, and he doesn't give in. Somebody else? Carrie? We're going we're gonna to deal... I mean, in a sense, all we did this week was verse 1. Actually, just, you know. But next week, I, my intention is to finish the chapter. Yeah. Because I don't want to spend, I don't want to spend week after week about how awful we are, because that it, it's true. But I want to, I want to turn the corner and get to the glorious finale to this great prophetic vision that Isaiah is sharing and that'll come in verses, or chapter 65 and 66. So I plan on finishing 64 next week. Anyone else? Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got, I mean, I have so many questions that you, we can't answer from Peter's message. But I was wondering when Larry was teaching downstairs, I'm thinking, like, I kind of think... I don't think Peter, like, after he, I don't know, like, I'm thinking after Peter preached that message at Pentecost, did he, like, did he then end and say, like, what just happened? Like, what just came out of my mouth? Like, or did he, like, he knew, he could have preached the same message the day before. But the Holy Spirit had not been poured out, it wouldn't have had the same effect. 
He, I, I'm not sure that he gained new information. Maybe he did. I don't know. Maybe Larry has it. I don't know whether Peter gained information. The difference was the Holy Spirit was now in what Peter said, so that as he shared it, it produced the effect that it had. But I'm not sure Peter was like, I had no, like he'd never thought the thought that Psalm 110 was talking about Jesus. Or Psalm 16 was talking about. I think Peter probably thought those things already. I think that's some of what Jesus taught him during those 40 days. Like, everything written about the, in the Law and the Prophets was about me. Let me give you some examples. I think Peter knew all that. I think he was primed and ready to go. But the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out so that it wouldn't have the effect, and he was not to share that message until that had happened. So I, uh, it's, it is amazing how Scripture comes together. Themes come together. And it's, it's always a progression. There's always more given than what you knew before. And you see it developing and you see, yes, and that's to give us confidence. Like when things, if and when things, however bad they get, it's the, it's the church of God that should be the not despairing. Because we know it is all going to accomplish God's purposes of redemption and judgment. And we, our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When darkness seems to veil his lovely face, I rest in his unchanging grace. It's all true. And, and probably most of church history is marked by the church. Do you really believe that? Uh, the American church has lived in a state of peace and prosperity for so long, it's hard to know how much we really believe it. Eventually, that'll come to an end. Somebody else? Well, we did the uh, we did the Gloria Patri. Let's stand and sing the doxology a cappella. <laughs>